0: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
1: What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30 pound sea bass, and a 10 inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its
0: new available Pro Access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. The new 2024
1: Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Pro Access tailgate available starting spring 2024. Cargo and low capacity limited by weight and weight distribution.
2: This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates' national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
1: Second and eight at the 28. Fakes the swing to the left. Fakes it to the right. Throws over the middle. Kittle is open. Kittle to the 10. two for San Francisco. The turn, the give to Mason, first down and more, into the secondary, Jordan Mason on the run, down the left sideline, inside the five, and out of bounds at the one. And San Francisco is going to win the NFC West.
2: First big play in the last big play on a Thursday night game that ended up being closer than it appeared it was going to be Peter King about as far away from Connecticut as he possibly can be in Oregon today. He's pulling the Miles Simmons up at 4 a.m. local time to do yeah. the show. Miles does it every Monday. Peter's doing it today. Peter, I appreciate you. you could have tapped out today. You're on assignment. You could have said, sorry, I got too many other things going on. We would have understood. We appreciate you getting up extra early to join us for this Friday edition of PFT Live presented by Google Pixel. As always, learn more at GoogleStore.com. Good morning, Peter, and welcome back.
0: Good morning, Mike. Mike, I had to get up to talk about one of the weirdest events. I mean, how in the world in the span of 12 days has Brock Purdy slayed the Dolphins, the Bucks, and the Seahawks. The Seahawks, the greatest rival of the 49ers. And you know it's not their year, but still, to go on the road. And we showed the play at the top that, to me, is the play of Brock Purdy's day. And And, Mike, last night in transit, I just sent a quick note to Kyle Shanahan, a text congratulating him. On winning the West with his third quarterback, who wasn't even all there, yeah, you who know, was all And he just sent back a very a very curt he goes, "Thanks. He was unbelievable. And look, I, to be able to do what he did, Matt Mayoko of NBC Sports Bay Area had a great uh, analysis of this last night. The first footballs that he threw were in a walkthrough in the ballroom at their hotel. Uh, a few hours before the game because he just wasn't able to practice. He had a bad oblique. Watch this. This is a guy who's hurt. Fake, fake, find Kittle, open, touchdown, right at the beginning of the game. And I just, I was wowed by his presence. You know, Mike, I just, I continue to be impressed with a guy who, you know, it, it, it just, nothing seems too big for him.
2: It really is unbelievable, and for him to step into the fray the way he did after Jimmy Garoppolo went down 12 days ago, as you said, against the Miami Dolphins. And no moment's too big for him. No spot seems to intimidate him. He's got a great presence of mind. He had plenty of throws where... He just looked like a guy that's been doing it forever. And he's got that, as Kyle Shanahan said after the game, poise, the most poise of any rookie he's ever coached stories will be written. Books will be published on the question of how in the hell Brock Purdy lasted until the very (laughs) end of the draft. And I'm sure teams are quietly kicking themselves. Not that, I mean, it makes me wonder how many other Brock Purdy's are floating around out there that just haven't gotten an opportunity because that's the final key ingredient what we're seeing you have to get onto the field through some chain of events completely unrelated to your skills and abilities to even give anyone including the player an opportunity to find out what he can do so i don't know maybe there are plenty of great players out there that were taken in round six and
0: seven that just can't get onto the field peter it's classic geno smith what geno smith says that if if you judge a player too early in his career Oftentimes, you're going to miss out on the greatness of that player, and in in his case, in Brock Purdy's case, you say, you know, wh- you know, how how possibly could this happen? I think everyone uh, minimizes to a point that I think is just uh, it really kind of overlooks the obvious, Mike. If you play 48 games in the Big 12, that is going to stand you in pretty good stead when you get to the NFL. And look, we all know that he didn't have a lot of moments of great triumph, you know, in college football. But just think of it, Mike, 48 games in Austin, in Norman, in Iowa City, and in wherever else, you know, the Big 12 is, Lubbock and all that. And so I just, I think that the answer to Brock Purdy might be hiding in plain sight. And the answer to Brock Purdy is he had an awful lot of experience and people just didn't love his college performance. Just because you don't love somebody's college performance, I think you got to hand it to, when I talked to Shanahan about this after that game a couple of weeks ago against uh, against the Dolphins, You know, he talked about the guys on their scouting staff who, you know, went to the wall for, uh, you know, for Brock Purdy and basically said, you know, we had a lot of intel on this guy, and it turns out to all be correct.
2: And it's helped contribute to the 49ers winning the division for the first time since 2019, You may recall that it was in Seattle, the final game of the regular season that year, that the 49ers won and clinched the division. They've now clinched the division with three weeks to go. The question really is, will they be the two seed? Will they be the three seed? I don't know how big of a difference... That really is, especially for them. I think they're ready to play with anyone and potentially beat anyone in the NFC, especially the teams farther down on the playoff tree. Whether they can beat the teams above them, specifically the Eagles, is what remains to be seen. But seven straight wins. They allowed 13 points last night. And for a long time, it felt like it was going to be single digits for the Seahawks. That defense is great. The offense is More than good enough. Christian McCaffrey had another 100-yard rushing game last night, two, four days apart, Sunday, and then again on Thursday, and they're just doing exactly what they need to do to be as good as they were three years ago, if not even better, Peter. I think that's really the question. They were a juggernaut three years ago, and with these seven wins in a row, it took them a while to get out of the gates but they could be even better than they were when they went to the Super Bowl back in 2019 and ultimately lost to the Chiefs a game that they led by 10 points with 7 minutes remaining.
0: The interesting part about this team right now is you know I just I hope for their sake and for the sake of great great football that they stay relatively healthy between now and the end of January because I think that The 49ers team that went to Seattle last night with maybe a little bit healthier Brock Purdy um, definitely has a chance to win anywhere that they play. And look, if your quarterback is wounded, if he's all beat up, if you lose one or two of your really valuable weapons on the defensive side, then obviously, look, the Eagles are one of the all-time kismet teams as far as injuries go there you know kind of you don't want to say fortunate because you don't assume injuries but they have been relatively healthy uh throughout their entire run this year and so that is what I look at right now you know how healthy are you by the end of the year and to me if the 49ers are healthy by the end of the year Mike you talked about it you know what that it felt like a single digit game last night well look if you look at what they've done in this stretch you know winning 7 in a row you know they have not allowed more than 17 points and that 17 was against the dolphins where they you know the dolphins at the time they're scoring 30 35 a game so they have they have done not the impop, not the impossible but certainly the improbable down the stretch of this season in shutting down teams. And look, no one again, Mike, is going to be the 76 Steelers with all the shutouts, uh, with, with you know, holding teams down consistently, you know, into single digits or zero points. It, it, the way the rules are these days, it's it's impossible. But, it's a big but, if you look at the 49ers, they are built to win games in a modern football way with a quarterback dispersing the ball all over the field to various weapons, and you assume they'll get Debo Samuel back. And that's why, you know, if the quarterback is going to be good enough, and Brock Purdy is showing that he's going to be good enough, and you have a defense that, unlike any other defense in football, is holding teams to... Three and a half yards a carry, which in today's football, this year, is really kind of unheard of. Um, And uh, I just think the sky is the limit as long as they stay relatively whole.
2: And I don't know that you and I have had this conversation. I don't think we have. It all kind of melts together to me one weekday after the next. What I've been saying about the 49ers for a while, because I think the injury issue for them is more important than it is for other teams for two reasons. They have that nucleus of badasses that you need to keep healthy. And if you lose just enough of them, you go to Atlanta and you get beat 28 to 14. You have to have those core guys available. And it's more of an issue for them than it is for the Eagles. Because these guys show up and throw their bodies all over the place every play and put themselves by the way that they play, by the way that they attack you, by the way that they are relentless. No hesitation is the phrase that the 49ers are looking for in all of their players. They're more susceptible to injury by the way they play without regard to their health and well-being. That's what makes it even more of an edge-of-your-seat kind of a thing. Last night late, Peter, and I just texted the rest of the writers at PFT because I haven't seen this, Christian McCaffrey was on the sideline during the last few plays. That's how Jordan Mason had the opportunity to pop the long run. And it's a credit to their depth, but when they showed Christian McCaffrey standing with his hands on his hips, and you could see his arms all banged up and bruised and ripped, and it, I, I'm thinking, is he? is he... Injured because he keeps running every play. There's that reckless abandon without regard to the possibility that you're going to get injured. When you're a running back, there's a chance you're going to get injured when you're a defensive end and you're in that mass of bodies, there's a chance you're going to get injured like a Nick Bosa. So that's why yeah. it's more urgent. It feels more perilous for the 49ers than it does for another team because of the way their guys play.
0: Hey, look, Mike, um, you know, I hate to keep going back to twelve days ago when I covered the uh uh Niners against Miami, but you know, you've one of the great things about the end of COVID for sports writers, quite honestly, is that locker rooms are open again. And you can go in and you can go. I had never met Aziz Al-Shair, uh the 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 standout linebacker for the Niners, who's kind of overshadowed you know, by Fred Warner and Dre Greenlaw, but Al is a good player in his own right. And, and I asked him about why the defense could play so consistently well and why it could come back after allowing that 75-yard touchdown on the first play of the game. I'm just going to read you what he said. It's like four sentences. I think a lot of teams play like there's another week. For us, what you see on tape is we play every game like it's the playoffs, even in September. We're scrappy. Offense, defense, special teams. We're going to go till we got nothing left. Some teams play like, ah, well, it's okay. We got another week next week. We'll figure it out. We don't play like that. Don't you see that in this team? I mean, these guys are, they're, they're just, they are, they are all out all the time. And you saw that, Mike, with Dre Greenlaw, uh, uh, you know, uh, knocking the ball loose in a crucial play late in the first half that basically allowed the Niners to score another touchdown on a very short field. So I think that holds the Niners in really good stead, Mike, but it also, it, you know, it means that to, for some of these guys, there's an expiration date on them. That's all there is to it.
2: That's right. Playing without regard to the future does have consequences because you can end up not being available in the immediate future or longer than that. You mentioned Debo Samuel. They expect to have him back by the end of the regular season, which is just remarkable when you consider the chain of events that culminated in him being carted off. And it just felt far more serious and permanent, at least for this season's purposes, than it ended up being. But if they can hold that nucleus together, they can go all the way. They can beat the Eagles. They can beat anybody. They could win the Super Bowl three years after they came so close to it. And Brock Purdy is the guy. Let's hear a little bit from Kyle Shanahan praising the guy who was the last player taken in the draft who has come in and really energized the San Francisco offense. Here's Shanahan from last night after the game.
1: Definitely another level. It was not a level for me. Just watching someone do it, it was um, the injury he had last week, and um, for him to be ready to go today. Which I mean, when it's still you could tell in, in um, pregame warmups. You know, a number of things that um, were really tough for him, and for him to be able to just play, let alone to play the way he did uh, to protect the ball. Um, I knew he struggled to move a little bit at times, but there at the end for um, that third and one, for him to be able to run and move the chains there, I uh, got. Team got a lot, they had a lot of respect for him before that game, but a lot more now. I mean, he's definitely the most um, poised rookie I've ever had. Um, you know, it's he's been like that since he's gone here. Um, I, from what I hear about him in college, I think he was very similar. You know, just starting as a as a freshman, and I mean, he's been great. I mean, he was poised all week, um, even him being unsure of whether he'd be able to go or not. You know, I think that was uneasy for him because he didn't know what to expect till he got in the game um under our circumstances uh, uh, we didn't have any other options or choices um, we we're going to see how long he could last and we were ready to go with josh um, but he just he got comfortable and got better as the game went and uh, well, it was pretty unbelievable
2: really is amazing to have that oblique injury and then you put in the short week and he still was able to come out and play at a very high level how about this fact peter Brock Purdy joins Aaron Rodgers as the only quarterback since 1950 to have a passer rating of 115 or more in each of their first two career starts. Now, a lot of people don't believe in the passer rating because it doesn't take into account mobility and running, but just pure passing accuracy and effectiveness in the passing game yards per attempt, completion percentage, touchdown percentage, interception percentage. He is extremely efficient and he is extremely effective and he does have the ability to get you with his legs that play late in the game where he rolled to the right and Christian McCaffrey was fading out that direction and he knew to wait for the defensive player to commit a key third down late in the fourth quarter and he knows exactly where and when and how to slide the exact spot to finish in bounds stick the ball out past the sticks I think Pete Carroll made a frustration challenge there because why are you thinking that – why is that getting overturned? That ain't getting overturned. Now, you may not have access to that view, the people in the booth who give Pete Carroll the upper down as to throw the flag, but I just think, what the hell, I'm going to call a timeout anyway. I'll throw the damn red flag. I have my challenges. Maybe I'll get lucky. But that just is an example of that poise. That's a a maximum extreme situation. Game on the line, and he makes a play – with the same kind of cool that you would make midway through the second quarter with no real consequence attached to how that all played out. That impressed me as much as any throw that he made the entire night.
0: Well, Mike, you know, so far in the three weeks, the most impressive play he made in the first game against Miami was he had Jalen Phillips coming into his grill and he waited uh, just a split second longer and found George Kittle for a 19-yard gain over the middle. Uh, and, and as we, we talked about last week, the amazing part of that particular play is that he completed that pass in 1.72 seconds, which is uh, one of the five fastest completions all year of a pass of more than 10 yards. And, you know, so why does that happen? How does that happen? I keep going back to the fact that he's done this before. He's been there before. And the fact that he had the poise last night to do what he did, I'm not so... I, I knew he would have the poise. There was two things about that play. Number one, he absolutely wanted to be sure that he stayed in bounds, that, that his rear-end cheek hit the turf before the white line. Watch this, watch this. He knew, he knew right away, he knew that he had to stay in bounds because it's all, the only thing that matters now is about is the clock, that's it. So he stayed in bounds. And Mike, I don't care how he's feeling right now or what the adrenaline is saying or whatever, the painkiller, I don't, whatever it is, okay? All I can say about some of the risks that he took with his body and the and the and the and knowing that he had to put the ball out to make sure that when his rear end hit the ground, the ball was at least where it should be for the first down. I just think all of those things, it's like an early year, and again, I am not comparing him to Tom Brady. I am not, but I am making the point that one of the things that Bill Belichick said very early on about Tom Brady, 2001, or maybe it was that year in the postseason, I forget, but I remember reading this. It doesn't seem like anything surprises him. And it's the exact same thing now with Brock Purdy. He has been there before, 48 games in college, now three games at a higher level. But he has seen these things before. He knows that sometimes... The clock is your friend, and you just want to milk it. And those are the kind of things we've seen three weeks with Brock Purdy.
2: It's situational awareness that you either have or you don't. And look, I don't want to kick a guy when he's down. Exactly. Peter, I don't see Jimmy Garoppolo making that play. I don't see Jimmy Garoppolo having the presence of mind in that moment to understand and have the physical ability to do it. Because it's one thing to know in your head – This is what I should do. And then you have the ability to do it and it all comes together and you thread that needle and you make that perfect play in that spot. And that proves so much about a guy that you can't see, you can't understand, you can't confirm until he does it. But once he does it, he shows you he's got the capacity to do it. And then that's kind of baked into who he is. That's who he's going to be anytime he's on a football field. He's going to be that guy who's the coach on the field, the guy who understands the chess match, the guy who understands what you need, when you need it, where you need it, how you need it, and he can do it. That's why plays like that, even though he's a rookie and even though there's going to be game film available now and people are going to try to figure out how do we stop Brock Purdy, then we become obsessed with it. Those are little things that, that you can take and you can say, aha, that's something that's not going away. And that's something that, that tells me, and I feel bad for Trey Lance. I feel like the 49ers have been kinda of trying to look for an off ramp for Trey Lance. They may have found one <laughs> in Brock Purdy.
0: Didn't it feel that's what Trey they've been
2: kinda of looking for? Like they're trying to look yeah. they're trying to look for a way that they can that they can surrender on Trey Lance without looking like complete and total morons for giving up what they got to get him. Well now they have the perfect balance yeah. to that hey, you want to complain about they three first round picks and a third round pick for Trey yeah. Lance? Yeah. Okay, well, we got Brock Purdy with the last pick in the draft, so it balances out, and then some, because yeah. we have a quarterback now that could be the guy that we've been looking for to carry us into the future. Time will tell, but, boy, they sure got something here. It's going to end all the talk about maybe going after Tom Brady in the offseason. That's over. That's done. That's gone. It's going to be Brock Purdy and Trey Lance next year. Jimmy Garoppolo's not coming back. It's going to be Purdy, and it's going to be Lance. And And you just see between the two of them which guy earns it. And Purdy isn't going to flinch. I don't know what Lance is going to do, and I feel bad for him. He got put in a spot where it was impossible for him to win. The bar was so high, I felt bad for him that he was the one that ends up with this burden on him, with these expectations on him to be the savior. And now, come next year, we've got a long way to go, but the farther Purdy takes them, the harder it's going to be to put Lance on the field, and the more natural it's going to be to just continue to ride with this guy who's proving himself every snap that he belongs. Mike,
0: you you know, you talk about the off-ramp for Trey Lance. I I really would like, if we can, to show that first touchdown one more time because I want to show you something about Brock Purdy's game and about Kyle Shanahan's confidence in Brock Purdy that, to me, tells so much of the story about where the 49ers are right now. If you see on this first touchdown pass of the game, You see Brock Purdy, who enters the game with an oblique injury, who also enters the game with very sore ribs. Okay, so what's the one thing that you really don't want to do? Look at this. You know, fakes left, fakes right. You're asking him to move his torso, you know, all, all over the place. Mike, on the first play of the game, the first, not the first play of the game, but the first big pass of the game it's not like hey let's let's warm this guy up and kind of get him into uh into position to be able to do this this was early in the game and it's one of the reasons why I don't think any of us a month ago would say you know Kyle Shanahan's got a heck of a shot to be coach of the year in the NFL. I don't think any of us really believed that he was going to be in the ball game. Well here we are. We are in the, at the beginning of week 15, the 49ers were, you know, they got three weeks to go. And right now, here's what we've seen. We've seen Kyle Shanahan have to replace his starting quarterback after a couple of weeks, then have, have to replace his number two quarterback, uh, you know, with whatever six games left in the season and then into the post season. And then you, you watch Kyle Shanahan basically, every game figure out a way of how he's going to be able to use a young quarterback and continue to win tough games look we everybody is now kind of making fun a little bit of the dolphins but that was a big win against a a really tough offensive team and again say whatever you want about the bucks but that is a division champion type of team. So to me, when I look at what he's done, then going into Lumen Field, the toughest home field advantage, that's what the Seahawks have in the NFL. And to start it and early on make a play like that and say, I don't care how I feel, I'm going to get this ball out and do what Kyle Shanahan has coached me to do no matter how what it what it feels like to me physically so i think the sort of the the chemistry between third string quarterback and head coach is is just excellent right now
2: chris and i did a coach of the year as of right now draft earlier this week and shanahan was one of the first picks because he is getting it done with three different quarterbacks. And he integrates Christian McCaffrey on the fly early in the season. And they just keep rolling, and they keep getting better. And now they've clinched the division, and now they're going to potentially be the number 2 seed. So, look, Nick Sirianni is going to get plenty of consideration, and he's going to deserve it. Because the Eagles are going to be the one seed, it's virtually impossible at this point for the 49ers to catch them. But what Kyle Shanahan has done amid all those injuries that are inevitable the way that the 49ers play their game—that 40 to one—I said it on Wednesday, folks. Forty to one; those odds aren't going to stay 40 to one. Not after last night. He's going to be up there today today than they were
0: before this game.
2: Those of you inclined to legally or otherwise put in a ticket for Kyle Shanahan, coach of the year, you better do it before the odds change because uh, it's looking pretty good for him. And the rising tide lifts all boats, Peter. D'Amico Ryan's defensive coordinator getting more and more buzz. And this is how it goes. Regardless of a coach's abilities, because we don't know what any coordinator is going to do, just like with Brock Purdy. You don't know what he's going to do until he's on the field. You don't know what any coordinator is going to do as a head coach until he's got the job. It's so a fundamentally different job, different existence, different responsibilities, different communication, different everything. So you just got to go do it, and you see. And for every Kevin O'Connell, there's a Nathaniel Hackett. And it just it works or it doesn't. But D'Amico Ryans, by virtue of being defensive coordinator on this team that is flying high with this great defense, it's great, as, as Dick Vermeil said in his Hall of Fame induction speech, I became a much smarter coach when I got Marshall Falk. I mean, you got Nick Bosa, you're a hell of a smart defensive coordinator. Yes, I'm one great coach when I've got the best defensive player in football on my team. But still, Peter, this is how it goes. Because we're, we're seeing what he can do, and we're hearing the praise, and the audience is that handful of owners is going to be looking for coaches, and they're going to hear it and they're going to believe it, and he's going to get his opportunity. The ship is going to come in for D'Amico Ryans. He interviewed for the Vikings job last year. I think that was the only one that he had an in-person interview for. I may be wrong, but uh, he's going to get more than one this year. He's going to be the guy at the top of everybody's list, and he should be.
0: You know, the big question for D'Amico Ryans is the same way it was the big question for Matt Eberflus, who's your offensive guy, who's going to tutor your quarterback you know wherever he would get a job who's going to who who's going to tutor you? let's say it's i i'm just going to pick one out let's say it's denver who do you have who can fix russell wilson let's say it's arizona who do you have who are you bringing with you who can fix kyler murray uh, you know and who can play without kyler murray probably for half of the season if if not more and so those are the big questions because nobody's going to have many questions about either his scheme or the way he reaches players. You know, Fred Warner told me this, I don't know, maybe a month ago. But Fred Warner said, look, one of the great things about having D'Amico Ryans as defensive coordinator is he's been there. We have watched his he said, I I watched his tape. I watched his tape from when he was when he was a player, and we see that this isn't just hot air. He's actually done it. He's performed what he's asking us to perform. And I always think that helps. When a coach knows what a player is going through, a coach will be able to say, hey, listen, like after last night, and I don't know what uh, the 49ers did, but I'm assuming Kyle Shanahan gave him the next three days off uh, before they have to come back and get ready for that Saturday game, the Christmas Eve game against Washington in, in Santa Clara. But he'll know, he'll be able to read his team to know, is it more important now to rest? Is it more important now to put the pedal to the metal still? And those are the kind of things that I think you're going to get when you buy D'Amico Ryans. That plus the fact, in my opinion anyway, I think you cannot overestimate the fact that he's got really good players. But it's like Pat Riley once told me, Mike, a long time ago before I was exclusively covering football. He said, the biggest myth in coaching is if you've got great players, you just got to roll the ball out. He said, those players want to know that you're going to help make them better. And that is what you need to do as a head coach. And so to me, I think he knows that because he has been in the business of being a Pro Bowl linebacker and trying to get better. And I think somebody out there is going to recognize that and is going to hire him and give him a shot.
2: And this is a subject for a deeper dive at some point down the line, maybe once he has a head coaching job. But very rarely do you see a great player, a guy who was one of the best in his day, become a head coach, become a potentially very effective head coach. So there's a lot going on. For D'Amico Ryans, and he was great as a player, and he's pivoted quickly to becoming a great coaching candidate. And the defensive coordinator side of it is real, Peter, because if you get the right offensive coordinator to make that connection, that all important connection to the quarterback, and it works, what happens? You got to find another one. And if it works, and he makes the connection with the quarterback, you got to find another one, and that's that's why I just generally, and I always feel bad saying this, especially around Coach Dungey. I generally would say I want an offensive guy as my head coach because I like with Kevin O'Connell. I want him to lock on to my quarterback, and I know he's going to be there, like Sean Payton and Drew Brees. I know that partnership's going to last, and I don't have to worry about getting it disrupted if we're suddenly a Super Bowl contender. That's part of what. A great defensive coordinator becomes a great head coach is going to have to worry about in today's NFL. Your offensive coordinator who does well with your quarterback is going to be gone. And you just have to go find another one. And maybe Demico Ryans will be uniquely suited to thriving in that environment that does create a disadvantage for a defensive coach.
0: I think one of the things you're talking about right now, Mike, is, you know, sort of the Luke Getze syndrome. You know, Luke Getze, basically now the offensive coordinator of the Chicago Bears, comes down from Green Bay working with Aaron Rodgers and all that. And so I think everybody assumed that Luke Getze is going to try to turn uh, Justin Fields into Aaron Rodgers South. He didn't do that. He said, I have a guy who's one of the greatest athletes ever to play the position in the NFL, and I'm going to take advantage of that. And look, even though Aaron Rodgers is a very good athlete, and is nimble in the pocket, he's not running the ball the way Justin Fields is. And so he decided right away. And and I talked to Getzee mid-season maybe, and we were talking about Justin Fields, and he said, you know, one of the things that I really like to do is I like to get, you know, all these guys in a room and basically talk to them about, here's what I want to do. Comments, questions, thoughts, give me, you know, and so... He is a, almost a Democratic leader in some ways, you know, Getsy, because he wanted to make sure that everybody was going to be on board. And I only mention that because I think sometimes when you are looking for an offensive guy, you want him to come in and say, I am putting my stamp on this team. It's not the only way it works, though. It, it, it really isn't. It can work in a number of ways. I've seen it in in a lot of years covering football. But the one one other point about what you want in your offensive coach, all right, at least this is what I would want. We're hearing now a lot of things, or I've heard it over the last couple of months, David Tepper wants the next Sean McVay. He wants a young Sean McVay. He looks at all the examples of young offensive coaches going in places, Kyle Shanahan in San Francisco, McVay. Kevin O'Connell, Minnesota. I mean, we can count them up. There's a lot of them out there. And you, you're looking at all of these coaches and you're basically saying, what do they have in common? And they have in common the simpatico with the quarterback. And right now you just have to wait and see who is out there right now. Who, peop- who are people really going to believe in? You know, who's the next, who are the next wave of really good offensive minds who we may not really see them right now on December 16, but probably in about three or four weeks, we're going to start to see the hot guys who the owners and the GMs really like.
2: Oh, it's coming too. As soon as the regular season ends, that carousel starts to spin and, and We'll be repeating things that we say every off season. It happens too quickly. It distracts guys in the playoff push. It's too much for these coaches to try to balance all of the demands on their time and focus fully and completely, as they should be, on finishing the task of taking their team all the way to the top. Peter, I've noticed a pattern, at least in recent weeks, and my memory doesn't stretch far enough back to... Recall whether or not it was happening earlier in the year. But last week, coming out of a couple of primetime games, the officiating theme was uncalled holding. This week, coming out of a couple of primetime games, there's a roughing the passer call that I believe wasn't roughing the passer. We saw Jalen Phillips on Sunday night. And eventually, the league, to my surprise, admitted that it was a bad call. We saw it last night. And this was the damn break moment. This was 28-3 with 12 and a half minutes left. This game was over, so I don't want to complain too loudly because we were going to have extended garbage time last night if this touchdown counts, <laughs> yeah. but it should have. It should have, and for all due respect to Kirk Herbstreit who defended this call, Kirk, I don't know what the hell you saw, and I was waiting for Terry McCauley to chime in. I wanted to at least hear whether or not he thought this was the right call, because this looks just like what Jalen Phillips did, that the league eventually admitted was a bad call when they flagged him for it.
0: When I saw this, Mike, the one thing I thought was, okay, maybe they got him for a bodyweight sack or a bodyweight hit. But you watch it, you watch it, and it really isn't body weight. He almost hits him and then goes crossways on him. You see that? It, you couldn't really... Call that a body weight sack because it's it's like it's like a body weight over his midsection to some degree. It, it, it was just an odd it, look. I don't know. Officials right now, the referee right now is, in my opinion, he is so rattled, he's so afraid of getting that call on Tuesday morning at nine thirty when all the grades come in. And I don't know if it's different on a Thursday night, but really on Tuesday morning is when the grades come into the official, and they're all just nervous about about missing a call that is going to be called by a supervisor, by a cross checker, is going to be called, uh, you know, is going to be is going to be flagged as a play that you should have gotten, and and you should have called, and so that to me is what is happening in the NFL. These refs, they all want to work deep into the playoffs. That's what they want to do. And they know that if they miss hits on the quarterback, that's the easiest road to being home for the winner on January 16th. We were showing the sack that wasn't called
2: roughing the passer. And I'm trying to be as objective here as possible I think that if you showed me both plays and asked me which one would be called roughing the passer, I would lean toward the second one, not the first one. If I knew that one of the two was, because the second one had more of an element of driving him into the ground. And maybe, maybe there was a hesitation to throw it a second time on Nick Bosa after getting him the first time and recognizing maybe it wasn't. But Peter, here's the fundamental problem. With the current roughing the passer rule. And this needs to be amplified. This needs to be discussed on every talk show, every TV show, every podcast, every blog, every media outlet that covers the NFL. And this is why I'm surprised there was an admission on Wednesday at the league meetings that the call on Sunday night was not the correct call. The rule is written to mandate the official to resolve doubt, any doubt. When in doubt, that phrase is in the rule book. When in doubt, call the penalty when it comes to roughing the passer. What other rule has that? When in doubt, throw the flag. And until that's taken out, that is going to lead to situations like this where there's any doubt, there's any shadow of doubt, flicker of doubt, reasonable doubt, 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 out comes the flag. And... They can make it subject to replay review to fix it if the doubt crept in and caused the flag to be thrown. But that's the biggest problem with it. And and I think that's why it's incumbent on us, Peter, to make sure fans understand that's why these flags are coming out. Because that's why it came out. It shouldn't have been. It was a it was a doubt that shouldn't have existed, but that's what doubt is. <laughs> doubt is anything that causes you to be slightly unclear about what you think you saw and you're making those decisions in real time, Peter. And like you said, you know, they want to keep the quarterbacks healthy. Troy Vincent explained it this way back in October on ESPN after the Grady Jackson foul that wasn't and others. And it was a big deal for a little while. And he said, Hey, we got, we got top 91 shows on TV this year or football games. And People tune in to watch quarterbacks and points and we want to keep our quarterbacks healthy. So that's why they're doing this. That There's got to be a better way and they're starting to figure it out, I think. But last night, and hey, again, I don't want to complain too loudly because it made for a more exciting game. But boy, if the Seahawks had won that game and I'm a 49ers fan, I'm pissed because it should have been 28 to 6 with 12 and a half
0: minutes left in the third quarter. <clears throat> I, I, there's nothing to add to that. It's, it's all exactly the way it should be. And and look, I guess I would, I would just sort of, I'd echo that. And I would just add one thing. The thing that I learned in uh, this was now nine years ago, I did a week story on a week in the life of of the officials with Gene Steratore's crew. And I went around the country and I saw uh, Dino Paganelli, the back judge, who's a, social studies teacher in, in, outside of Grand Rapids, Michigan. And, and, you know, so I went to see all these guys and we, <clears throat> many of the discussions were about rules and about studying the rules. And Gene Steratore himself, I saw the Paul Casto come over his face at 9.30 on Tuesday morning. I was at his house with him and he looked he opened up the email with his grades from the previous game, Houston against Arizona. And he got downgraded two plays that day, or that that weekend. And the first words out of his mouth, Mike, there goes the Super Bowl. Hmm. And so I don't want to harp on that, but that's the reality of what is at stake for these officials they all want to work the Super Bowl they're all driven to be the best Cleet Blakeman wants to be the best Sean Hockley wants to be the best and so that is what is weighing on them as they see tremendously athletic and and brutish you know pass rushers you know like Nick Bosa Uh, like Joey Bosa's brother, you know, just down the coast, but they look at this and they have to make calls like this in, in just split second in, in just in real time. I do not envy them this task. I just don't. They're on the field. They see these things happening. I'm not killing the officials for, for, for missing these calls. I think it's natural with all the pressure on them to miss these calls Because they all want to work the Super Bowl. And they all want to go deep into the playoffs. I totally get it. But Mike, it puts a lot of pressure on them that, in my opinion, leads to some wrong calls because they're worried about getting downgraded.
2: And among other things, too, they're trying to stay alive among the gladiators with no helmets, (laughs) no padding, and they're trying to see what's happening with the naked eye as it's flashing by them. And that's why I think, and I doubt that I'm alone here because I know I've talked to some people who I believe have real influence. I just think it takes time to make it happen, almost a reimagining of the entire officiating function. Sean Payton likes to say that we're still using two metal rods and 10 yards of chain to determine whether or not somebody got a first down. Like there has to be a better way that reflects the advances that have been made in society over the last hundred plus years. That would make it easier to more accurately officiate what happens in an NFL game real quickly on the Seahawks before we break, because we've, we've got, it's funny. It's like, this kind of a little game. Like how are we going to talk about this for a half hour? Well, it's almost 50 minutes into the show. We can, we can, Peter, I have a feeling, and this is both good and bad. Good and bad. We can find a way to talk for 50 minutes about anything. But uh, the Seahawks are now 7-7, seven and seven, and they're up against it. They may not make it into the wild-card field. And to make matters worse, Tyler Lockett suffered a broken finger on the final offensive drive of the night for the Seahawks. Pete Carroll said after the game that he could be out for the rest of the season. That's going to make it even more difficult for this team that started great and had that glow of a – a, not a Super Bowl – but a division champion, and now that's gone, and now they're in that cluster with the Giants and the Commanders and the Lions, for crying out loud, for that last playoff spot in the NFC, and it could be very difficult for the Seahawks to hang on.
0: Hey, look, Mike, what's your reward for playing the Thursday night game, <clears throat> handing the 49ers, not handing, but you know the 49ers winning the division, your arch rivals winning the division on your home field. What's your reward? Hey, great. We get to go to Kansas City on Christmas Eve. And all <laughs> that's at stake, all that's at stake is our playoff lives. And by the way, we may have to do it without our steadiest offensive player over the last six or seven years, Tyler Lockett. I, I mean, you know, it's – and then after that, they get to come home and face – one of the five toughest defenses in football, the Jets. I I don't know, Mike. I I just this this story for Seattle, in my opinion, really started to turn eight thousand miles away or whatever it was in Munich. Yes, when they laid an egg against the Buccaneers and lost their fourth game of the year. I I, I think we were all thinking at that time. They went into that game like six and three, and we're all thinking, well, you know, they're the they're going to be the six or seven seed at least, and they might even win this division. And so we're all we're all thinking really positive thoughts uh, about the Seahawks, but all their warts really have emerged, you know, as they now have lost four of the last five. I think, and Geno has fallen to earth a little bit. But but I do think this, Mike, overall, overall, if you are John Schneider and you're Pete Carroll, even if this season does end with a thud, you say, now listen, let's let's just be let's be honest with ourselves. We traded Russell Wilson, and our reward for trading Russell Wilson is finding out that we've got a decent quarterback in Geno Smith. And, and he just might be our guy. Who knows? But he might be our guy. And let's say he's not our guy. We're going to have two picks in the top 18, including one very high, Denver's pick. And we're going to have two high picks to basically either start to reconstruct this roster or to go looking for a young quarterback to battle Geno Smith. So don't cry for the Seattle Seahawks. I think there's a lot of great hope in Seattle right now.
2: No, this season's still better than anyone thought. They cashed out on Russell Wilson at the absolute right time, and now they can lay the foundation for the future. We're going to cash out for at least a couple of minutes. Michael Parsons trying to undo the foundation he's laid for even more (laughs) acrimony with the Philadelphia Eagles, trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube on some things he said about Jalen Hurts. We'll talk about that when this Friday edition of PFT Live continues right after this.